was on my way over here, realizing that I was wearing a tie and, and a cardigan, I felt like maybe I should bring my sneakers over and we could start the service by me taking off my dress shoes and putting on my sneakers, and then we might could all take a land on a, a trip on a trolley to the land of make-believe. Um, uh, in, case you, in case you are missing what I'm talking about, I'm talking about, of course, the great Fred Rogers, and uh, the many of us grew up in his neighborhood. Uh, I think it's, it is one of the interesting things that two of the men that I've never met who have had the most impact on my life were Fred Rogers and R.C. Sproul, um, both of whom were in seminary together at the same time, which I think is just sort of amazing. But, uh, but, uh, so, but, but don't worry, there's not going to be any singing and there are no puppets, so we should be okay. But hopefully there will be kindness, although not as much as Mr. Rogers would have brought us. We are moving into the last chapter in Galatians. We are moving into chapter 6. We are right there in chapter 6. We've only got, after today, we've only got one Sunday left. We were just spending two Sundays here in Galatians chapter 6. Um, we have been here in Galatians since uh, close to the beginning of the year as we have moved through this letter from Paul to the churches there in Galatia. And through this, we have seen Paul lay out this doctrine of grace. We've seen Paul lay out that it is Jesus alone that saves us, that there is nothing that we can do that can add to our salvation, that our salvation is not Jesus plus our actions, but it is Jesus alone. Paul's shown us this by taking a look at his own life. In those first two chapters, we saw his testimony and what God had done for him, the, the, the doctrine and the, the message of grace that God had brought to him independent of any other person. Then in chapters 3 and 4, we saw Paul turn to Scripture, turn to the Old Testament, and to see him uh, appeal to the stories of the Old Testament, see him appeal to Moses and Abraham to show us how the doctrine of grace is not something that is new in Christ, but something that has been present with God and his people from the very beginning. And now in these last two chapters, where Paul is showing how the doctrine of grace works itself out in the body. This, this application of theology we might want to call ethics. That's a, that's a word that can sometimes get people a little a little anxious and a little nervous. If you've ever uh, known a lawyer, you know, they have, to take, they have to take two different exams. We all know about the bar exam, but they also have to take an international, not international, excuse me, national ethics exam. That's part of their process. If you are in any profession where there is licensure, you have dealt with ethics. Some of us have had to spend time in very boring meetings having someone tell us about our professional ethics. And so that word sometimes makes us uncomfortable because, because we've connected it to these negative events. But all ethics is, when we talk about it in the terms of our lives as believers, is the working out in our life of the beliefs that we have, of our faith in God. See, there's, there is right belief, and the big fancy word for right belief is orthodoxy. Ortho meaning right, doxy meaning what we believe, orthodoxy, the right belief. And orthodoxy is incredibly important. But hand in hand with right belief is right action. The big fancy word for that is ortho, right, and 
praxi or praxis. What we do. You know, it's important for us to remember, however, that as important as orthodoxy and orthopraxy, as right belief and right action are, neither of these are what save us. Paul has not told us, you are saved through Christ as long as you believe and do the right thing. Christ, Paul has told us, you are saved through Christ. Our belief, our actions are not what saves us. It is Jesus who saves us. But orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right belief and right actions are both important aspects of our faith. James tells us in his letter that faith without works is dead. And we are not called to have a dead faith as believers. We are called to have a living faith. You know, see, without right belief, we're going to get our actions all messed up, aren't we? If we don't, if we don't think the right way, believe the right way, if we're not being molded by God in faith through Him and His Word, we're going we're gonna to end up way off the rails. And if you ever have any question about that, go back and look at some of the weird cults and sects that have existed in the past and some of the weird things that they have gotten into. Almost always, they get into some weird interpersonal relationship territory. Plural marriages and free love. I regret to inform you, free love was not an invention of the 1960s, but has been around for a whole lot longer than that. And in the past, oftentimes it has been given a quote-unquote Christian veneer because their beliefs were messed up and so their actions got messed up. But also, without orthopraxy, without right action, our faith isn't a living, saving faith. Because if we really believe that God has saved us through Christ, it will change everything about us, including the way that we act and interact with other people. See, it's important for us to remember that faith is not a mental assent to a proposition. When we're called to have faith, it's not God calling us to, to simply believe certain things about Jesus. In fact, Scripture tells us that even Satan and the demons believe those things about Jesus. No, our faith is to have trust in those beliefs. I've used this example recently, but it is such a good example, I'm going to keep using it. You can have belief all day long. You can have no in your head all day long that that bungee cord is going to keep you from going splat at the bottom of the canyon. But until you throw yourself over the edge of the bridge, you don't have faith in it. You can believe, you can know in your head all day long that Jesus is the Son of God who came to live and die for us, rise again for us, that His blood washes away our sin, but until you trust him, until you take what Soren Kierkegaard called the leap of faith and throw yourself off the edge of the bridge into God's salvation, the knowledge in your head is no different than the knowledge of Satan or the demons. It's not what we say up here. It's how we believe, how it works itself out in our life that shows our faith. And so in chapter 6, 
We're going to continue to see how this living out of the faith should happen within the bounds of the Christian community, within the body, within the family of God. And so we are going to be in Galatians chapter 6, starting with the very first verse. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing... You who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourselves so that you will not be tempted. Carry one another's burden. In this, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all his good things with the teacher. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. This is the word of God. Let us read it. Let us believe it. And let us live it. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we stand before you this morning, as we open your word this morning, may it form us. May it shape us. May it be the foundation of our faith. And God, I would pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So as I was doing my study this week, I, I, I found something that is going to change everything. In fact, it, it totally changed the way that I thought about the book of Galatians. I want to share it with you. This is, this is, this is amazing. This is, this is just unbelievable. I, I got it from Tony Merida, who wrote one of the commentaries that I have been using, and he is just so smart and brilliant, and it will totally unlock how we understand Galatians 6. Are you ready? This is his great insight. Galatians 6 follows Galatians 5. Exactly. Wow. It's amazing. Right? This is the insight. And we can joke about that, but this is actually really important. Because in chapter 5, Paul has been talking about living by the Spirit. Right? That's what we talked about last week, what it meant to live by the Spirit. And now here in chapter 6, he's going to show how life in the Spirit should lead believers to live out that faith in the biblical community. In his book, Tony tells a story of a friend of his who's a pastor in New York, church planter, and they're planting and they're growing, but it's 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 hard. And one of the faithful ladies of the church comes to him and says, Pastor, Pastor, I've decided this is what we need to pray for. If we want to see the church grow, if we want to see the gospel go out from here, I know what we need to pray for. We need to pray God would bring signs and wonders. And the preacher said, you're right. 
Absolutely. Hey, you see that lady over there? She and her kids have just been evicted from her apartment. You know what would be a sign and a wonder to the glory of God? If you would invite her and her kids into your home for three months so that she can get back on her feet. That would be a sign and wonder of the Spirit of God. See, the context for the work of the Spirit is the biblical community. Is this. And it makes us uncomfortable because we live in a world that tells us that it's me and me and me. It's me. That's all I need. Right? All I need is me and Jesus. I can go and I can worship on the creek side fishing. I can go and worship on the golf course. I can sit at home and watch the TV preacher. Every now and then maybe I can leave the house and go to revivals to get filled up. I can talk about the Spirit at work in my life. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. If you are not an active, plugged-in member of your local church, you are not following the New Testament standard for believers. The Spirit works through and by the local church. It's one of the reasons that I'm a Baptist. Because of our emphasis on the local church. There's no bishop telling us what to do. There's no district superintendent looking over my shoulder. It was an understanding that God works through the local church. And as such, the local church is responsible directly to God. See, God saves us. And He empowers us through the Spirit so that we may live in community and fulfill His mission in the world. And this is where we see in these ten verses that we read today. The first verse, we see this call for gentle restoration. We see this call for gentle restoration. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore the person with a gentle spirit watching out for yourselves so that you will not be tempted. Notice how, how it starts. Notice the context for this restora- restoration. How does the verse start? Brothers and sisters. It's, it's family. The context is the family of faith. We've talked about this, right? The church is a family. Later on in, in verse 10, we're going to see Paul talk about the household of faith. Back in chapter 4, he talked about how we are able to call on God the Father as Abba. We're a a family. Now here's the thing, you love family, right? But sometimes, family members need to be corrected. Ask Audrey, I need to be corrected on a regular basis. I can't even get dressed without her help. See, we're called to love each other. And when we love each other, we don't want to see each other destroy our lives. To make a shipwreck of our lives and our faith. You don't want to see that, do you? You, Many of you have children. Do you wish to see your children destroy their lives? No, because you love them. And you're going to issue a corrective word to them. Hey, I don't think that's a good idea. Maybe you have siblings. Same thing. 
Maybe you've reached an age where you have parents who can make some bad decisions as they get older and, and lose some of their cognition ability. We step in because we love them. Because we speak truth and love. And why would it be any different for this family? See, there's a need for restoration. The enemy sets a trap and we get caught in it. And here's the thing. If you fall into a trap, it's really hard to get yourself out, right? That's why it's a trap. Remember the, you know, those, those traps? You open them up and they've got these teeth, right? See something steps in the middle of it and crunches down. We, we can't get those traps open by ourselves. We need someone to come along and help us pry the jaws of the trap open so that we can get out. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is do we even have a burden for our family members who are lost and who are wandering? We've got a dog, Deacon. Deacon has come home. Deacon has a little box that lives on his collar. It's called a whistle. It's a GPS tracker for the dog. Audrey will tell you I need a GPS tracker. I can get lost in Costco. I need one on my keys. But we've got one on the dog, right? Because the idea of him somehow getting out and getting away from us and getting lost is not acceptable to us. All three of our animals, the two cats and the dog, they all have, have chips between their shoulder blades so that if they are lost and are found, someone can read that chip and let us know that they are lost and that they have been found. We do a lot to make sure that we don't lose our pets. Why are we not doing as much for the wandering members of our family? See, there's this idea, I think, that we've developed that the church is just one more charitable club for us to belong to. It's, it's the Red Cross. It's the Rotary Club. Both of which are phenomenally important, great organizations. The Rotary Club meets Tuesday night, 6.30 at the stage. We'd love to have you come and join us. The Civitans. Great organization. Just had an amazing Blood drive. These clubs are great, and they do a lot for our community, but this is not what the church is. The church is not a club that we come and we pay our membership dues to and do good works. The church is the family of God. The group of brothers and sisters that have been adopted into God's family, made heirs to his kingdom, and knit together by his Spirit. I love the men and women that I am in Rotary with. And a couple of them are members of this church and believers in Christ, and as such, they are my brothers and sisters in Christ. But not because of Rotary, but because of the Spirit. 
So, so we're going to restore a person. We're going to seek down the one who has wandered, the one who has lost, and we're going to restore them. But how are we going to do that? The word restore here means to put back in order or to repair. And it's the same word that we would see in Greek if we're going to set a broken bone. No, Daniel's not up there. I was going to ask him what being restored is like. I don't see him. Sorry, Mama, I didn't mean to get him in trouble. But, but how, do we, how do we set? Has anybody ever had a broken bone and had it set? The doctor doesn't come in and scream at you and tell you what an awful person you are for falling on the ski slopes and breaking your collarbone and jerk you around and beat you up, Right? They come in and they comfort you and they tell you it's going to be okay and then they put that horrible brace on your shoulders and pull everything back and it hurts to have a broken bone set. But that pain is not intentional. The pain isn't intended to be caused by the doctor. The pain is just the byproduct of being put back together. If we're going to restore people, if we're going to bring people back together, we need to come to them and restore them and knit them back together the way a doctor would set a bone. We need to love each other. We need to do it with care and concern and gentleness and compassion and be honest with them. Hey, here's the deal. It's going to hurt. And in fact, you might even get really woozy when we pull your bones back together. But if we don't do that, you're not going to be able to use your arm. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus gives us steps for church discipline. You have heard this before, but just in case. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So that's the first step. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two others with you so that by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. And if he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile and a tax collector to you. How does Jesus treat the Gentile and the tax collector? He treats them with compassion and love, right? He eats with them, he meets with them, he talks with them, but there is still the understanding that they are outside the fellowship. See, the goal of this process that Jesus has laid out, the goal of this process of restoration is positive and constructive. The goal here isn't to to be the sin police. The process, the goal is to see broken people brought back to health. You know, there are sins that that just destroy people's lives. And the lives of the people around them. We see an example of how Jesus would have us seek restoration in the story of the woman caught in adultery. You remember that story, right? A woman is caught, dragged before Jesus. I still want to know what happened to the man. They didn't bring him before Jesus. They let him go. But they bring the woman before him and they want to stone her. They want to punish her. They want to tell her what an evil, bad, no good, very bad person she is. Bad, bad, bad. 
we're going to stone you. What does Jesus want? Jesus doesn't want to stone her. Jesus doesn't want to punish her. He wants to restore her. He wants to see her brought back into the family, brought back into community, brought back into health. He doesn't want to punish. He wants to restore. See, this idea of of what we might call church discipline is hard. It's tough. We, We don't like it. It makes us uncomfortable because we live in a world that thinks that we shouldn't be formed by any institution, even the church. We live in a world that tells us that we are perfect just the way we are. We are a special little snowflake. No one is just like us. We are unique and lovely and no need to change. And so institutions, which should be places that form us, have become stages upon which we perform. But we're called to be formed by the gospel. We're called to be formed by Jesus over and over and over again. Be not what? Conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. The institution that God has given us to form us, to shape us, to to, to help us become disciples is the church. And so what's the nature of the restorer? Paul here in Galatians doesn't give us any steps for restoration. We looked at the steps that we got from Jesus. Paul doesn't give us any, but he does describe the restorer. First, he shows us that the restorer should be spiritual. You, know, you, you don't need to be on the rescue mission if you're not living by the Spirit. There's that passage, that, that chunk of the Sermon on the Mount. People love to quote, judge not, lest you shall be judged. Right, right there in Matthew 7. And Jesus ends that in 7.5 with this, Hypocrite, take the beam out of, of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Yeah, Jesus is telling us to take care of ourselves. But notice he doesn't say, and you don't need to worry about the other brother's speck. He says, take care of yourself so that you can take care of I had trouble with my contacts this morning. The, the, the right one did not want to behave. I don't know what happened. I think... What happened was I got a speck under my contact. If you've ever worn contacts, it's happened to you, and you know how horribly painful it can be. In fact, I couldn't do anything until I got that speck out of my eye. Specks in eyes are debilitating. We need to help each other get those specks out, but we can't do that if we're walking around with a big old log sticking out of our eye because we are not taking care of our own spiritual health. See, Jesus isn't saying not to be concerned. That's how the passage is often presented to us by the world. Rather, he is pointing out the need to address the speck so that we can only do it if we ourselves are healthy. See, what Jesus is opposed to is not helping one another. What Jesus is opposed to is an arrogant self-righteousness that says, I can help you without taking care of myself. That's the hypocrisy. 
So first, the restorer should be spiritual. Second, the restorer should be gentle. There's this great passage from Martin Luther, who was perhaps not known for being the most gentle of men. He's writing to another minister who's talking about a a member of his church who has fallen into sin. And this is how Luther tells him, what Luther tells him to do. Run to him and reaching out your hand, raise him up again, comfort him with sweet words and embrace him with motherly arms. The restorer should be gentle. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. And if you're walking in the Spirit as you need to be, you will approach one another in gentleness. Third, the restorer should be careful. Paul tells us that we should watch out for ourselves so that we will not be tempted. So that we don't fall into the trap as well. You remember, uh, anybody remember Swiss Family Robinson? Like the, the 60s version, not the 50s version. And the pirates are coming in. There's a tiger on the island with them, right? And so what do they do? They big a, dig a big hole and then trick the tiger into falling into the hole and then cover it up with palm fronds so that when the pirates are coming in, they'll fall in with, with the tiger. Let's not talk about what the end result of that would be. Disney movies were a little different in the 60s. But what happens when you fall into the hole? If you're trying to get somebody out, so if my brother has fallen into this hole, is trapped down there with a tiger, if I'm not careful, I can get pulled down into that hole with them. So what we teach each other when we teach, first, um, uh, not first aid, lifeguarding, is to be careful trying to rescue someone who is drowning because they can pull you down too. And so we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we're not falling in to the trap ourselves. So Paul shows us that we need to restore one another, but he also shows us that we need to bear each other's burdens. That we need to help carry each other's baggage. Those living in sin need our help, and those that are burdened carrying the baggage of life need our help as well. Because we don't want to see each other get crushed. Or in our families, we help carry each other's burdens, don't we? Because we don't want to see our brothers and sisters crushed. See, burdens are a reality of the fallen world. There's this assumption sometimes that in the Christian life we're never going to have any burdens, but that's not true. Jesus tells us in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous, for I have conquered the world. We will have burdens, and we are not self-sufficient. We cannot carry them alone. You know, we can cast them on God and we're called to cast them on God and that's good, but we still need each other's help. Let's look at Moses. Moses needed help. In Numbers, Moses calls out, I can't carry all these people by myself. They are too much for me. And if you've ever read the story of the Exodus, you know what Moses is talking about. Moses' father-in-law, and some of the best advice that a father-in-law has ever given to a son-in-law Jethro's father-in-law says this, What you are doing is not good. You will certainly wear yourself out and these people who are with you because the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. We are not self-sufficient. 
and but also bearing each other's burdens is is commanded to all believers as we look here carry one another's burdens this is not a suggestion this is a command because burden bearing is how we fulfill the law of Christ pride can hinder burden bearing there's a story about Muhammad Ali you may have heard this story before Muhammad Ali's on an airplane they're about to take off. A flight attendant comes by and she says, Mr. Ali, I need you to put on your seatbelt. Muhammad Ali's response to her is, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And her response to her was, Superman don't need no plane. You know, sometimes we think we're something when we're really nothing. We, we're called to die to self. Paul's told us in Galatians, I no longer live but Christ lives within me. Don't compare yourself to your neighbor. <laughs> Thank God I'm not like that guy. But rather examine yourself in view of God's evaluation of you. And when you do this, you will see that there is nothing in which to have pride. Kill your pride by comparing yourself to Christ. Paul also distinguishes between heavy burdens and light loads. We see there in 6.5, he tells us, for each person will have to carry his own load. That sounds a little contradictory, right? Bear each other's burdens, but everybody's got to carry their own load. This is one of those problems that we get into reading the Bible in the language in which it is not written. The word that's used in verse 2 is baros. It means a heavy burden. The word that's used here in verse 5 is forcion, which is basically a backpack. Some things are so heavy that we cannot carry them alone. Right? You ever been on a picnic and someone tells you to grab the cooler, but it's one of those really big coolers? You can't carry it by yourself. You've got to get somebody else to help you carry it. But there are other things in life that are just part of our everyday carry. The things that we just carry with us because they're part of life. Our keys, our phone, our wallet. We've got to carry that. It's not right for us to ask other people to carry those things for us. See, everything in our life is not a crisis. But sometimes we need help. Toward the end of Return of the King, Frodo and Sam are going up the side of Mount Doom. Frodo has this enormous burden in the ring that has become to weigh heavier and heavier and heavier on him. And so even though it is this little ring, it is weighing him down and he can go no further. And what does Sam, his faithful companion, say to him? Come, Mr. Frodo, I cannot carry it for you, but I can carry you. We can't carry each other's burdens sometimes, but we can carry them. There's a slight shift in verse 6, and I'll be honest with you, I almost skipped it because it's going to be a little awkward. And it covers this idea of generous sharing. And, and he says here, basically, you need to 
support those who are teaching you. Can anyone understand why this might be awkward for me to talk about? But he talks about the responsibilities of the teacher. The responsibility of the teacher is to expound on the Word of God. To teach the fundamentals of the faith. In contrast to the false teachers that he's called out at the beginning. The point of a teacher is not to entertain, but to teach God's Word. Then he also says that the responsibility of the receiver is to support the teacher. But it's important for us to see this isn't, about, this isn't about money. It's about making sure that the idea here, the emphasis here, is making sure that the Word of God is being taught rightly. By caring for the needs of teachers, pastors, and ministers, what we as the church say is we want the Word of God taught faithfully and effectively. Then Paul moves into personal holiness talks about sowing and reaping. And he says there are two fields in which we can sow. The field of the flesh or the field of the Spirit. It's one or the other. Holiness is a harvest. And if we, we, we do this all the time, right? We sow to the, to the field of the flesh and then wonder why we don't reap holiness and victory and blessing. We need to choose our field wisely. The books you read, the people you hang out with, the things you watch on TV, the stuff that you listen to, these are all acts of sowing. And so are they sowing to the flesh or to the Spirit? What can keep us from restoring our broken brother or sister gently? A failure to sow in the Spirit. A lack of holiness that hinders real community. What can keep us from bearing one another's burdens? Pride. Because we're sowing to the field of flesh. What can keep us from sharing generously? Because we're sowing to the field of flesh. Paul ends here with some exhortations to practical goodness. Encouragement and instruction. In encouragement, we see this. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Compassionate ministry can make us tired. Contending for the gospel can be exhausting. But keep sowing. This is the encouragement. Keep loving. Keep resisting. Keep bearing one another's burdens. Keep preaching the gospel because the harvest is out there. And we will reap what we sow even if it takes us years to see the fruit. And then we end with this instruction. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. There's a universal and a particular challenge here. The universal challenge is for us to love our neighbors and ourselves, to be sensitive to the needs in our community and to show mercy to all. But there's a particular call to the members of the household of faith, to restoring the broken brother or sister, to bearing the burdens. And so let us be spirit-led people marked by a gentle restoration, a humble burden-sharing, a Uh, A a generous sharing of of need, a personal holiness and practical goodness. Because this is the life of the Spirit. This is an image of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus restores us. He restores our broken relationship with God. Jesus carries our burdens. Jesus has been overwhelmingly generous to us. There is no man who has ever lived who has sowed more to the Spirit than Jesus. Jesus. This is who we are called to be. This is what living by the Spirit looks like. This is what being 
a community and a family of faith looks like. As we begin to move to the table, I'd invite our deacons who are going to serve this morning to, to come forward. I will uh, point out it has been over two years since the deacons have served, so we may be a little uh, rusty. Patience and forbearance, I ask. This is a table that we gather together and that we share together because we are a family. This is a, a family meal. It's this table that allows us to grow as a family, to share together. Y'all can be seated if you can behind you. There are a couple. Don't step on the... Sit on, there you go. Who was called to this table? Those who are called to this table are those who are baptized believers. Those who are called to this table are those who would be a part of this family. Those who are called to this table are those who are willing to both be corrected and to correct. Scripture is clear that if we come to the table with an improper spirit, it is to our harm and not to our benefit. So who is called to this table? Any who do truly and earnestly believe. Who are in love and charity with their neighbors. Who seek to live new life in Christ. Who seek to be in right relationship with one another. That is who is called to this table. This family meal. On the night that he was to be betrayed, our Lord met with his disciples in the upper room. And as the meal was getting started, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Likewise, at the end of the meal, he, he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my blood shed for you and for the many. The blood of a new covenant. This is the table of our family. Come and join us.
Brothers and sisters, this is the body of Christ. Take, eat, in remembrance of Him. And this is the cup of the new covenant. Christ's blood shed for you and for me for the remission of our sins so that we may be washed white as snow. Take, drink, in remembrance of Him. God's Word tells us that as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim Christ's death until He comes again. Um, <clears throat> Jessica and Alicia will be um, closing us this, eve- uh, this afternoon, morning, whatever time it is. It's some time of the day. But as they are making their way up here, um, I do want to ask one thing. If some folks could help us stay after worship, um, the youth are preparing for their tenebrae service, and we need to um, get the pulpit down and all that sort of stuff, and it can be a little heavy. So if some folks could help us stay afterwards and help us take care of that and move stuff to the side, I know that Kathy and the youth would really appreciate it. I also want to thank all of the folks who were here yesterday who helped uh, clean over in the cemetery. It looks fantastic. Um, So thank you so much uh, for being here yesterday and taking care of that. We're going to end our time of worship together by singing. Stand as you're willing and able.